I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman, a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show. Yeah. Yeah. I am a podcast. Whoa. Hey. Interviews with fans and people. Welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an interview variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Umbrella Weapons. Perhaps you've heard of them? Today's episode, The Mechanic. Batman's car gets crunched by a bridge after a high-speed chase with the Penguin's goons, leading him to some secret repairs by his personal mechanic, Earl Cooper. But when the Penguin threatens Cooper's daughter, he's forced to booby-trap the Batmobile and send Batman and Robin on what may be the last ride of their lives. Original air date, January 24th, 1993. Story by Steve Perry and Laren Bright with a teleplay by Randy Rogel. Directed by Kevin Altieri. Music composed by John Tatkenhorst and Peter Tomaszek. Animation by Dong Yang Animation. Starring Kevin Conroy as Batman, John Delancey as Eagleton, Steve Franken as Rundle, Barry Gordon as Sheldrake, these are all names that I don't think were ever said out loud in the show, Lauren Lester as Robin, Candy Brown as Marva, Walter Olkowitz as Falcone, or Falcone, Paul Williams, ooh yeah baby, as the Penguin, and... Paul Winfield, legendary as Earl Cooper. Today's guest, Ezra Clayton Daniels. Ezra is one of my current favorite writers and illustrators. His graphic novel, Upgrade Soul, got me into his work and quickly became an all-time favorite that sits on my comic shelf. I can see it while I'm recording in this dang closet. And his follow-up, Bottom Feeders, also on the shelf, which he co-created with Ben Passmore, is just as great. It's wildly different. You gotta check it out. Uh, I really haven't sought out a book to be signed by an author since I was a kid, but when I read Ezra's stuff, I found out he was at like a very local con, and I was like, I gotta go meet this guy and have him sign it and buy his book again and do just that. So I can't recommend him enough. I just am purely a fan of his work. If you like thoughtful science fiction, deep and funny characters, a dash of social commentary wrapped in fun genre, can't recommend him enough. Uh, You're gonna love his stuff. And beyond that, he's also writing for HBO Max's upcoming Doom Patrol Season 3. So there's your little DC connection, you bat fans. Uh, So please, enjoy our chat about The Mechanic. It was a real treat to talk with him, and I think you're going to like it. Well, here we are. We're doing it. We're sitting across from each other virtually. How are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? You know, good, relatively good. <laughs> yeah, it's all relative, but it's great to finally do the show. We've been talking about this for a long time. I know. I, uh, yeah, I guess it's truly 
been maybe a year or so. And uh, I think I bugged you initially just because I read your your graphic novel, uh, Upgrade Soul, and then Bottom Feeders. And I just fell in love with your work. And I was like, I got to talk to this guy, have an excuse to <laughs> to chat <laughs> in some capacity that seems professional. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks for your diligence. <laughs> I know I've been squirrely. It's been a crazy year for lots of reasons, but yeah. I don't know. Nothing's really gone on. Uh, I don't know what yeah, you're talking I guess you're about. Right. It's been pretty chill. <laughs> uh, but also, yeah, you've been working on Doom Patrol, which you, you were able to like announce publicly. This writing the third season. Yeah, yeah. So that was my big thing. So I put out um, Upgrade Soul and Bottom Feeders, which you mentioned, and those books both just opened up a lot of doors in Hollywood, so to speak, this year. So I've been doing a lot of screenwriting for the first time. So it's been a very exciting and just like work packed year i think it's like i have the type of psyche that i'm like i'm one of those people that everyone hates during the pandemic where like i deal with my emotional stress and depression by burying myself in work so i've been insanely productive this year and i haven't dealt with a single emotional issue (laughs) so i'm just like i've been like amassing a pile of scripts and i wrote like two or three episodes of television, wrote a feature script, wrote like five drafts on uh, film adaptation of Upgrade Soul. And I just like haven't dealt with anything. So I'm just waiting for, I feel like once I get the vaccine, I'm just going to have a nervous breakdown. But for now, I'm just like a steam train going full <laughs> forward. Well, I'm happy that you were able to at least process things through your creative work, uh, even if it's completely buried <laughs> <laughs> at the moment waiting to erupt yeah it's weird you know it's like it's weird watching stuff that was written and created during the pandemic and seeing how they address it and i feel like a lot of people and especially creatives are like something this big just takes a long time to wrap your mind around especially to like wrap your mind around how to process it and i think especially in an industry like the one that we work in where like these giant behemoth machines are moving and moving and moving and it's so hard to get them to stop so it's like I was working on a TV show in the writer's room when the pandemic first hit, first started, like when everything first started to get locked down. And so we went remote and we were working uh, in, in real life, which seems a million years ago now for the first couple of weeks. And when we went remote, it was just like, we were still just working on the show, just like some, just working, like writing a TV show while like the world in many literal ways is like falling apart around us. And we're just like still every day logging on the Zoom and being like, got to write some TV. And just like, you just have to put these blinders on. It's like, what are we doing right now? It really, the disparity is so huge <laughs> between what's going on outside and like whatever the creative life is. Because I was, you know, worked on some stuff, but mostly my work conveniently ended like right before pandemic. So I was like, time to chill on a hiatus. <laughs> and it was like locked inside uh, forever. But it does feel crazy because everything is falling apart around you and you're lucky to have that sort of focus to distract you. But at the same time, it's kind of like, what is this even for? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot with your guests. So I don't want to like derail the whole thing into a pandemic recap, but that's where we're all at. Uh, that's true. But, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, your work is so cinematic, so it, it makes sense. I feel like that it, feels like an easy jump to screenwriting but has that been a, a challenge or like what was the what was it like for you well I always dreamed of becoming a filmmaker since I was a kid I think I got into comics just because comics were easier to make as a kid with like really bad social anxiety just the idea of managing a cast and crew of people just 
was terrifying to me when I was in my 20s and going to art school. And luckily I was able to draw. So it was just a more convenient and efficient way for me to tell the stories I wanted to tell. And because I like science fiction and horror, it was just like cheaper to just tell my stories in comic book format. So, so I did that for many years, but because film was my first love, um, most of my biggest inspirations are all cinematic. And I learned how to write um, by studying like screenwriting, like books on screenwriting. And I write my comic scripts in the screenplay format, like even Bottom Feeders, which was illustrated by Ben Passamore, was written in screenplay format. I literally just sent Ben a screenplay. I didn't even break it up into panels or pages. I was just like, here's the screenplay, just run with it. Um, so the transition to screenwriting has been, I wouldn't say completely seamless, but because it's like a format that I already wrote in, um, I think it made it easier. And also I think because I write and draw comics, I think I have like a really, I've developed a really visual sense of storytelling. And I, that's one thing that everybody who reads my screenplays says is like, oh, there's like, there's this is such a visual script, which is something that I never would have thought to like put a focus on when I'm screenwriting, but because I'm imagining how these things will work as comics, because that's how every story I've ever written is realized. I think that translates in an interesting way that I think people find appealing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. At least it's got me a couple of jobs. <laughs> I mean, it must be working. I, I'm just excited to hear that Upgrade Souls being adapted because it's it's beautiful. It's great. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that's super cool. And I guess I know you can't talk much about Doom Patrol, but in terms of uh, what's that been like? Did you have a familiarity with the characters before? Or I guess what's your comics background too, like growing up? Yeah, my comics background is. Um, I was a huge Marvel kid growing up because I discovered um, my uncle Bobby had a box, just like a single cardboard box full of like 70, 70s era Marvel comics. I discovered those when I was like like eight or nine. So it was like the perfect age to discover that. Um, and so I really got into Marvel comics. But I at the time, I was always more into the art than I was into the story. Like I just like loved looking at the pictures. I don't remember anything about any of the stories of these like like Man Wolf and Iron Man and like <laughs> Spider-Man issues from the 70s. And then when the Marvel Comics trading cards came out in the 90s, that was it. I Clear was just ultra like, baby. <laughs> yes, it just like it reduced everything I loved about superheroes to like <laughs> the main thing that I loved cuz you know, I was like an illustrator growing up and I was just like starting to learn the names of illustrators that I liked and following certain illustrators. So those cards were just such a great it was just like the comics portfolio. It was just such a great, easy way for me to keep track of the artists that I like so I could follow them and like discover new artists and then track them down to other stuff they were doing, like Sam Keith. Like through Sam Keith, I discovered the Max and like just like it just opened up a lot of doors for me. But again, it was never about the stories. It was just about the design and illustration. It's cool. Uh, I feel like we all have our own ways in too, you know. Uh, I, I really yeah. loved toys as a kid and I don't know if you've heard of toys before. <laughs> I said that like no kid Wait, liked toys. T-O-Y-S? T-O-I-E apostrophe S. It was a really weird spelling. Yeah, but I feel like my way into, you know, capitalism worked on me. You know, it brainwashed me into loving cartoons because I had the thing that corresponded to it. And so I, yeah, I think I fell in love with like the designs, but like these like you know, 3D rendered versions of 2D designs and like being able yeah. to tell stories with them that like, you know, weren't in the cartoons because I don't know, half the time the writing, it varies. I think on a show like Batman, uh, it, it feels elevated, but uh, it was mm -hmm. fun to to throw stuff together. So I, I, I feel you yeah, on like, I don't remember what happened in like the X-Men cartoon necessarily, right. but I loved 
the snap on armor for this figure. Yeah, this like translucent totally. <laughs> green yeah. or something is what stuck out to me. Yeah, I was the same with toys. And like coincidentally, just two days ago, I fell down an internet rabbit hole looking up all of the this website called I think it's like yojo.com and it's just like a visual database of every GI Joe figure that's ever been made. And just going through the years that I first started getting into collecting GI Joe, cause GI Joe is my thing. It was just like, I, I like, I became the person I am today because of GI Joe action figures. Wow. I, I'll give hundred percent credit mom and dad, eh, whatever the GI Joe action figures. <laughs> they raised <laughs> they <made> me. me. <laughs> they raised me. But I think the main thing with those figures, I mean, this is a total tangent, but you said you like tangents. So here we go. Oh, yeah. But the fact that GI Joe action figures are so articulated gave me like gave me such a sense of human gesture and movement that I totally pulled on as an illustrator. So like as an illustrator, I was just like always imagining like when I was a kid with my GI Joe toys, I would pose them in like the most realistic, subtle gestures. It would be like all my GI Joes are set up like sad Keanu and shit. Like it was like <laughs> not even action poses. It was just like really subtle gestures. But yeah, I love those. But yeah, going down that rabbit hole at yojo.com was just like, it was just like emotional to like look at these old action figures, like the first G.I. Joe figures that I ever had that I'd forgotten all about. It was just like, yeah. Yeah, well, they're weird. They're like deep and emblematic and like symbolic. <laughs> like they carry that yeah. weight because they were just there during childhood, even though they're, you know, a piece of plastic. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and, they're, and like you were saying about just like how the these, like the images and the design of these things were so divorced from the story. Like all of my favorite G.I. Joe action figures I don't even think they were even in the show. Like, I only like these figures because of the way they looked. And they looked like, this is, I'll get into this when we talk about the about the episode that I watched. But, like, I was so attracted to black male action figures because they reminded me of my dad. Mm. And I was so starved for those images in, like, in just pop culture. Um, so, yeah, going back and looking at those G.I. Joe figures, I was like, I hadn't thought about this figure since I was a kid, but there was this G.I. Joe figure named Hardball. Uh -huh. And he was just like a black dude with a baseball cap. <laughs> it was like my favorite. He was like the lead in every adventure I ever had. And I didn't know like anything about the character. It was just like, that's my toy. Yeah. I mean, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like the beauty of them. You know, it was just like, we, we make these our own. Yeah, I feel like I, I'm so curious. So, like, what was your background, I guess, in terms of watching cartoons and, I guess, the Batman animated series? Did you have a familiarity with it when you were a kid? Or Yeah, I mean, I think, so I was born in 79, and Batman the animated, animated series started in, like, 91, 92. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it was, like, 92, I think. So I was 12 or 13 when the show first started. And I was, like, to be honest, it was one of those things. It was, like, I'll compare it to 9-11. It was one of those things where, like, I remember where I was the first time I saw Batman the Animated Series. And I remember, like, and I was old enough to understand how revolutionary it was because I'd come up watching, like, G.I. Joe and Transformers. And I remember how big of a deal it was for Batman the Animated Series to have real guns instead of laser guns. And I remember, like, recognizing that and being like, oh, this is something different. And I remember talking to my friends in middle school about like, you guys got to watch this show. Like, it's not like super friends. This is something totally different. Like I was like an early evangelist for this thing <laughs> in middle school. And, and yeah, like I think it kind of presaged a lot of the things that I would become as like an artist in ways that like I didn't even realize until going back to watch this episode that I watched for this podcast. Cause I hadn't gone back to the show since I was a kid basically. 
That's it's so interesting because I'm a little bit younger. So like my my experience with it was like not knowing it existed until suddenly it was in front of me. Uh, so I was like, you know, in elementary school and I was like, what? It, this is different. I know this feels <sighs> different. I can't articulate it, uh, but it feels different. Uh, but I there wasn't any I, I feel like you have like early adopter evangelist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it was like you were on the precipice of the cool version of it. And I was just like it was washed over me once it was already out there. Yeah. T- yeah. I felt like I was totally like it, it felt like it was made for me when it came out because it was like because like I said, I was 12 years old. So I was just starting to outgrow like the shows that I watched when I was eight and looking for but still like in love with superheroes and like and action and adventure and like, and really starting to really fall in love with animation as an illustrator. Cause like, I, you know, just have like had such a, a great fascination with animation. Um, so yeah, it was just like this thing that took the things that I loved from when I was younger and just like made them feel more mature and made it like, okay to still like this stuff as I was becoming a tween. It was just like perfect. Yeah. I feel like things are so different now, uh, with animation. Cause I feel like there is that like tween audience that's catered to. Uh, but oh. I feel like this gave people permission, permission to still like kid stuff or whatever, however it's described, you know? Yeah. Well, let's dive into it. Cause I hadn't seen this episode for a little bit. Uh, it's, it's got a lot going on, <laughs> but also, you know, it's like, <laughs> It's it's like an outlier, uh, but also it is like kind of a story wise like a ripoff of Batman Returns, sort of, which is very is it? strange. The, it's an entire <laughs> sequence uh, only because I love <laughs> I love that insane movie. Uh, but there's a whole sequence uh, later in the movie where the Penguin takes over the Batmobile. It's exactly the plot of that. Like all the the kind of like <laughs> hallmarks of Batman Returns Penguin are only in this episode, and then the rest of the animated series, he's not really reflected that way. That's hilarious. I did not make that connection at all. Again, I don't remember the plot of Batman Returns at all. I mean, it's hard to say if there really even is a plot. It's just kind of like a series <laughs> of like fantastical escapades, but it's it feels like Tim Burton at his most Tim Burton-y. <laughs> like it's very dark and gross, but also very stupid and silly. Uh in, at least in all the ways that I love like just like campy goth. <laughs> uh and, yeah, totally. And then what year did that come out? Ninety or ninety one? Yeah, it must have been right before the animated series, because I think the animated yeah. series basically exists in the way that it does because of the Burton movies. Uh, yeah, right totally. before yeah, they got canceled or he, he got fired because, you know, McDonald's didn't want to sell toys of like, you know, the gross Danny DeVito penguin coughing up like black goo <laughs> and shit. Uh, <laughs> they were like, you know what? Uh, we're going to fire you for making something a little bit more interesting. <laughs> but, you know, I was a kid. I loved that. You know, I loved monsters. So and he's a monster for sure. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this episode. So like what was your, I guess, uh, I feeling like just watching it uh i mean that opening i imagine is like hits home (laughs) yeah totally yeah i think like i was saying there are certain things about this show that became like touchstones in the way i kind of became an artist i think the main thing was just like the sense of intentionality behind every single decision starting with the opening sequence and like i don't know what the word is but i want to say like stayed or just like quiet there's just like something really like controlled and paid like evenly i don't know what the word is i'm not I, i'm not being very articulate right now no, but, but, I hear just you. Like, but yeah but there's like a quietness as compared to like the 
like the chaos of something like G.I. Joe or Transformers and especially like the other shows that were coming out around this time, like the Nickelodeon shows like Rugrats and stuff like that were like really like just like really manic in a way that like I was starting to turn away from as a kid with like blossoming social anxiety. I was just like, I need something that I can like zone in on. This stresses me out. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I don't know why. Rugrats, these little kids are out of control. I mean, they're gross. They look gross. They look like shriveled, uh, I don't know. They look like hell creatures. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. And I love that about them. But but I think, yeah, there is something. I think the other thing about Batman is like just the sense of like the focus on design. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. But like not only the graphic design, but just like, the compositions of every shot and like the color compositions and, and the choice of like dynamic angles that you just never saw in cartoons uh, were just things that I was like, I was just starting to learn about perspective and like, um, like color, not color theory. Cause I was 12 years old, but just like how to use colors to kind of like tell stories or like how to choose colors to like design your superhero costume. And I feel like because Batman, the animated series was so controlled, it all felt like, I don't know, like it opened these things up for me in a way that I didn't really understand before. Like when you compare it to something like He-Man, where every character is just like, it's like bullet toenail guy. And it's like, and they all have like these insane costumes and insane names and there's no coherence between like the characters in the world. Batman the Animated Series was like, everything was so controlled and coherent and consistent. Uh, so yeah, it was just kind of a revelation for, for me. Yeah. That it really, I'm surprised that it wasn't as motivated by toys as every other cartoon, at least at the time. Because I feel like He-Man characters were created for the action feature or whatever, like, you know, the yeah, exactly. stink or smells or, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned earlier about like the 2D, like the, the way that toys took 3D characters or not 3D characters, but these 2D characters and turned them into 3D objects. I always felt like the animated series toys were the first toys that I ever saw that actually really looked like the cartoon. And maybe it was because the cartoon had such a distinct flat look compared to like Ninja Turtles or whatever. But I remember those animated series toys were like, oh, this is, they're so stylized. Each one of those little toys was like a sculpture. Yeah, I was, I, I fell in love with them. I mean, I remember hunting down villain figures because they were really hard to find and, you know, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before because you do 80-something episodes about a single show and <laughs> you repeat yourself. But truly, I, I, you know, my mom would get me like, you know, she, she was, what what a good mom. <laughs> was able to like track down these weird figures and like, you know, there'd be like a used version of it. And it was missing an accessory, but I was like, I got the Joker. I don't have his gas mask, but I got the Joker. Uh, and, and they really did look, yeah, like the the cartoon, which I feel like you look at old, Star Wars or even Ninja Turtle stuff is so exaggerated and there's yeah. like, I have a love for like the toy designs of those kinds of uh properties too just cuz they feel like their own thing. Yeah, totally. But this like the Star Trek the animated or Star Trek the Next Generation toys were always really wild to me cuz they're based on real people but the toys look like Ninja Turtles figures with their like big heads and just like their arms all sticking out. I love those toys but they're so wild to me yeah they're crazy and yeah i think there is a trust and patience to the show is 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 something that feels like you felt like you weren't being completely talked down to as a kid yeah uh that's cool that you were kind of exploring illustration and like just color even before you understood it uh from the show because i mean they even call out the dark deco of the show i think 
just to jump to the end of this episode we're going to talk about but that <laughs> there's like a little in joke to their own style is like what penguin gets that uh he's he's having to like make license plates in jail mm-hmm. as his little ironic punishment and uh beyond the silly plate but it says like dark the dark deco state <laughs> is like what they call <laughs> gotham which is very fun that uh, the design style of the show is what the uh, gotham is known for in the in universe <laughs> that's so funny well let's dive in let's just talk about the mechanic which i think is one of those cool ideas at least uh that you don't always see it's like how especially in the 90s or even before then it's like exploring how heroes you know actually functionally are able to work like how does the batmobile get repaired and that that's at least an interesting conceit even if it's more about the penguin (laughs) taking control of the car than like exploring the characters that we're introduced to in the episode (laughs) yeah i think well i can well when you first reached out and sent me the list of all the shows of like all the episodes of the entire series and other like ancillary spin-off series i was just running through the list of the titles without any real like recollection of what those episodes were about and just like seeing which titles jumped out to me as like shows that i read episodes that I remembered. I remember the Clayface episodes a lot. I remember I loved the Clayface episodes when they came out. But then I saw the title for The Mechanic and I was like, I don't have any idea what this episode is about, but there's something about this title that I feel like this was one of my favorite episodes. And I don't know why, because I don't remember what it was about. Uh, So going back and looking at it, it was just cool to see, like like I was saying earlier about the, the way I was obsessed with uh, black male G.I. Joe figures. I was like, oh, that's why this episode stuck out because like the mechanic reminded me of my dad. And there's and there's also just something like you were saying about this, like, I feel like I'm rambling right now, but let me tell you something about The Dark Knight, the movie, the Chris Nolan movie. <laughs> when I watched that movie, <laughs> watching the Joker do all of his insane plans, all I could think about was imagining the Joker on a series of phone calls trying to farm out all of these different like construction jobs and like comparing quotes and like going through this whole process and like, and trying to figure out like just the drama of like a construction person getting a phone call from the Joker and worrying about like, is this job going to ruin my career? Like, do I, you know, there's like all these dramas around like things that are not directly related to the super, like the superhero punching the supervillain, but just like around the world. Uh, like in the world around them. And I think that is something that I have always been interested in. I think that's my favorite thing about superheroes. I've never, like I said about like the comics that I first got into, I was never that interested in superheroes, but I was interested in the world around them. Like how does the world build up around these larger than life characters and like what economies spring up around them. And I think this episode may have been like the birth of that interest, but I feel like it was super interesting to see like the origin of the Batmobile and like, and how does the, Batman get his car fixed when something happens and it was just like answering those questions was really exciting to me as a young kid yeah I mean totally there, there's so much to dig into there I think just just speaking to that yeah I think the older I've gotten the stuff that I'm more interested in are like as you become an adult and realize how much work goes into anything <laughs> yeah the Joker having to make a phone call like a sociopath <laughs> You know, having to figure things out that it's like, you know, that you had to like coordinate with like city government and, you know, maybe contractors like that's a lot of work. Like, uh, 
<laughs> Let yeah, alone... that's what interest. That's a whole other movie. Uh, yeah, I, I really would love to see. And I feel like we've seen kind of like gentle stabs at this. And usually it's like comedy or parody yeah. uh, of like, you know, the insurance companies that must pop up around like superhero citywide. Damage. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I would love to see uh, I would love to see that like in more depth in like, you know, these Marvel movies, uh, which I don't think yeah. we'll ever fully get. I mean, I think we kind of dive into it, but there's still broader strokes. Yeah, there was the Dwayne McDuffie created a comic called um, was it Damage Control? I believe so. That was like that was their that was their whole thing. I think they made an appearance in one of the Spider-Man movies. So hopefully it'll that'll go down that path. I mean, but, Dwayne yeah. McDuffie, I feel like contributed to so much <laughs> of, of what is like great about all these like cinematic universes and animated universes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause yeah, I think he totally had a great grasp of like what was interesting about these characters, which was just like the characters are the symbols. And like it, the interesting thing is like what gravitates to that, toward that symbol. Uh, I wanted to speak to before we jump, uh, jump away from it. Cause in the beginning you were talking about like, seeing this character that reminded you of your dad <laughs> again. Yeah. Um, and I guess like, so you're saying like on an unconscious level, like you're like, oh, I remember loving this episode probably because of this. Yeah, I think so. Because, uh, yeah, I didn't remember anything about it. So when I looked at the at the still, it just brought back those memories of, like I said, like collecting those action figures that reminded me of my dad and just seemed like part and parcel of that whole childhood experience well and i mean honestly how many non-white batman characters are there (laughs) like i feel like you you could count them on one hand at least in terms of like speaking parts even in a 90s cartoon which is yeah exactly it's like lucius fox uh who it was fun that he appears in like the dark knight movies too and then earl cooper and maybe a few i feel like i can't think of any like significant characters which is a bummer (laughs) yeah yeah, and like even as a as a twelve twelve year old kid, I don't think it was a conscious thing where I was like, I love, like I didn't think I was seeking that stuff out. It was just like I naturally gravitated to it and stuck with it. And I I don't think I realized until years later why my co- why my collection of GI Joe figures includes every fucking black GI Joe guy <laughs> ever created. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that, like, it's the conversation that's continually had but keeps having to be said. It's like, yeah, representation matters, especially in kids' cartoons and especially in, like, yeah. kids' media. Uh, it's yeah. like, yeah, we need, to, we need to see ourselves, whatever yeah. version of that it is. Um, I wish we got more. Honestly, I feel like the character is kind of short-shrifted. Like, we, we don't get much with him. We do get, like, a nice long backstory, but it still is, like... Yeah, I thought that was great. You know, it's like, and here's why I love Batman. Not, like, <laughs> here's what my life is and my daughter, who is mostly gagged for the entire yeah. episode. Yeah, she has, like, two lines. Uh, but it was, it was really cool. It was like, I wish this character came back. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Because, yeah, he, he doesn't really have much to say. Although I will say when, when he first came on, it was really exciting to recognize Paul Winfield's voice, which I didn't realize that he was doing animation voiceover work at that time. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like they went for kind of bigger gets <laughs> or, or, you know, like just I know that they pulled from live action a lot. Mm-hmm. And so like you'd get certain I mean, like him and like Paul Williams are such strange choices yeah. for for voiceover. And now it's like, yes, that makes sense. But I think at the time cartoons were really looked down upon and it was yeah. mostly like, you know, your classic voice actors who were, who were being called in. And I feel like this was the beginning of like 
pulling celebrities because they wanted like mm-hmm. more grounded reads, even though now that's kind of what plagues all casting is like, you need a celebrity, <laughs> even if they're not yeah. good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I remember when the show came out, there being this, this aura of prestige around it where I feel like it, maybe they had a segment on like Regis and Kathy Lee about it or something. I just remember like it being like in the news or something or like it was a, like Batman, the animated series was a big deal when it came out. Maybe it was because it was off the heels of the Tim Burton Batman movies and Batman was just a huge thing. But I remember there being this like prestige about it that just made it feel elevated. And I was when I was looking up to make sure that it was Paul Wilmsfield that did the voice of Earl Cooper, I saw that it, that John Delancey did a voice for like one of the random thugs in the episode. Oh, man, that's wild. There's I mean, they I feel like they pulled I know that like even Mark Hamill before he was the Joker was just a small voice in the show. Like he begged to be on the show. Oh, wow. Uh, like I feel like it was people who the way you kind of hear about like 60s Batman villains like Vincent Price being like, you know, I'll play anybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think, it, you know, it was similar for this where like it was cool, I think. And also voiceover was the easiest. If you're a successful actor, you just get to pop in yeah. for an hour and be like, <laughs> all right, peace. <laughs> totally. And then there was some sort of, I don't know who ended up playing Marva, his daughter. It said Candy Brown, but also Lynn Moody sometimes in, in what I was looking up. So it was like... Oh, in the same episode? Yeah, it said some of the credits credit uh, Candy Brown and then others Lynn Moody. So Oh, wow. Yeah, I looked up Candy Brown and she is a very prolific actress, but I hadn't recognized her. Yeah, just seemed like a, like a working actor who's been yeah. doing everything, but... I guess we we kick off with a a car chase, a nice little hood ornament shaped like the penguin. Yeah. In case you didn't know who the episode <laughs> totally. was going to be about, this car chase was hilarious. It was like because Batman is such a bad driver in this episode. Yeah, I was just like, I know they have to have it like this to set up the whole plot of the show, but like when he misses the exit on the interstate and has to like stop and back up and go back the correct way, I'm just like. Anna, have you ever driven before? I actually felt like they make a joke about this later in the episode that like when they first show up at Earl's garage, he's like, oh, you've been letting the kid drive again. And Robin's like, oh, ha ha. But I was like, this opening sequence would have actually been better if it was like Robin learning how to drive the Batmobile. And that's why he's making all these idiotic driving choices. Because like even not to skip ahead to the end, but like when the when the Batmobile finally gets messed up enough for them to have to take it to the garage, it's just like you couldn't have just stopped earlier or like use some kind of like reverse thruster to back away from this bridge that's closing it just seemed like such a rookie mistake for batman to make yeah it's like maybe it's good that the penguin takes over your car uh he, he drives it better <laughs> than you do better. he totally does i thought about that too when he was this is like all the way to the end but when he's driving through these like super narrow corridors in the parking garage i was like this guy's a master driver like he's incredible you know you should be doing some stunt racing uh for hollywood pengy <laughs> Totally. And he didn't even have a screen on his little remote control. I was like, it'd be one thing if he was using an iPad to control it, but he was just blindly navigating these narrow corridors in the parking garage. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Batman deserved everything that came to him in this episode. Yeah, he did. He was a total dumbass in this episode, I have to say. (laughs) And I mean, I can't believe that those goons survived that fly off the bridge, land on a barge. (laughs) It looked bad. Like it looks like the blood was just digitally removed from the scene. I, yeah, there are definitely some compressed herniated discs after that, after that fall. I did notice as the barge was pulling away though, was it, there was like a penguin symbol on the back of the, 
Yeah. Smokestack? I mean, again, you know, the amount of legwork it would have to take to make that, put that on a barge, rent the barge or purchase the barge, get it working. Right. So, yeah, so I guess my question was, was that barge intentionally there to catch those guys when they jumped off the bridge by the penguin, or was it just like a nod to like penguinness? I don't know. My my assumption was that it was his barge to catch them, uh, but this is like truly the most fantastical this penguin appears in the show, I think. Like, yeah, he really, uh, I wonder how early into production it was. Like, I think it maybe was episode 55, but like they just churned out a bunch of scripts in the beginning. I think they just got an insane order. They were like, make 60 episodes in a short amount of time. And I think they like dove more into him as just kind of this like low stakes villain with, who has like an inferiority complex and this like, you know, acts high class, but nobody cares about him. Yeah. Um, but this one was really leaning into like kind of sixties goofy, like giant rubber ducky sitting on a throne that yeah, <laughs> which yeah, exactly. felt at odds with like some of the other episode, uh, or at least the realism, I guess the amount of realism you can get in a show with, you know, Clayface. But I, th- I still think that feels more grounded than this episode did. Yeah, there's a, a darkness that was missing from the Penguin, I think. I agree. Yeah, he felt a little more Joker-like, especially toward the end where he was just kind of giggling as he was controlling the Batmobile. I mean, it was a great, Paul Williams did an amazing Joker laugh. I was like, yeah. he'd be a great fill-in Joker. But yeah, the characterization seemed to veer a little bit away from that, like, depravity. It felt like they were introducing you to him. And like one line I wrote down was, perhaps you've heard of my umbrella weapons, which is an insane <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Uh, perhaps yeah, your children at home <laughs> want to be introduced to who I am as a character. <laughs> and even like, yeah, like, what are you supposed to do with that information? Like, it's not, it's not the most intimidating threat. Like, you better be careful or I'll beat you with my umbrella. <laughs> You're like, all right, man. You know, here's a guy who can shapeshift his hand into a spiked ball. I'm, you know, <laughs> no offense, not that worried. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was, he's, he's definitely a broader, goofier penguin, but yeah, we have, we have this insane chase and I feel like a lot of the shots are really cool. Uh, I mean, I I think you talked about it earlier, but I think the, it, it takes money and time to, you know, I think board these episodes with more, I mean, they feel more like comic books too, uh, which animation usually has to skimp on. Yeah. Yeah. And it was cool watching the show, like not having... I mean, there's just like they don't really. I mean, it sound it really makes me sound my age when I say they don't make shows like this anymore. But just like the 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 basic two D cell animation is something you don't see very often, and it's really apparent when you go back seeing like what corners they could have cut and chose not to cut. Like there's this one shot of like so the climax of the of the chase of the in the beginning is this um, drawbridge drawbridge rising up and then one car goes under it and the Batmobile gets smashed under it when the drawbridge comes back down. And the angle at which they showed the drawbridge lowering and rising was like, it was at like a dynamic angle from like, like a, like a helicopter style shot looking down. And so the, the drawbridge was in perspective. And so when they animated the drawbridge coming down, it was, they had to like actually animate, they had to redraw this bridge for every frame of animation Whereas it would have been so much easier to just show it from a flat 2D, like straight across shot. Mm-hmm. So they could just like lower this object down without having to redraw it over and over. And I noticed like there are several instances in this episode alone where it's just like, it would have been a lot easier for them to not 
animate that <laughs> but for some reason they just animated it yeah it feels like they were trying to make a statement uh and like a splash yeah yeah I, I don't know if people realize basically what you were just saying <laughs> you know how much effort goes into just a different perspective of the same thing that you technically don't need but yeah. it looks cooler hopefully <laughs> yeah uh i remember working on the last show i was on has a lot of like insane fantastical stuff and there's like an episode where like gravity is switched and things are flying away and it's all difficult but i remember our the creator of the show and our like supervising director they were like the hardest thing is having these two characters carry this plank of wood in a realistic fashion and cover a hole they were like this is the hardest thing in this whole episode <laughs> why did we do this <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, there's a shot at the end of this episode that was kind of the same thing where it's like, like the hardest thing to animate is like things interacting with each other, like either characters holding an object or characters touching each other because there's just like so much to keep in, in mind. But there's a shot when Batman is like, we'll get to it later, but I'm just going to talk about it now because it's on the subject yeah, of yeah. like animators making more work than they need than they need to do. But when Batman, uh, he's got his like glider and he's chasing the car down and the car finally gets like smashed under the semi truck and he lands with his glider on and the tail of the glider like hits the concrete and, sh and sends up a sh bunch of shower of sparks. I'm just like, why? <laughs> it was just so weird. Cause it was like, did Batman mean to do that? Did he break the glider when he landed? But it was just, it would have been so much easier for them to just hand it, have him land normally and like not have the tail hit the ground. But yeah, it was just like, awesome. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's the stuff. I feel like every every sh every other shot was something cool happening. Like once once the silence was over, you're you're in for kind of unnecessary flourishes in the show. <laughs> I mean, there was a point. This is again just kind of racing towards the end uh, of the episode. But I think like Penguin when he's kind of baiting Batman in the Batmobile before he controls it, like stops short and forces Batman to hit him. But like, there's like yeah. exhaust that comes out and a fart sound effect. I, I noticed that too. <laughs> As we talk about, when we talk about how like grounded and groundbreaking the show is, totally. I don't think I ever, I did not remember that there was a fart sound effect used in any Batman it episode. It's literally a fart sound. It's like Hanna-Barbera, <laughs> like can sound fart noise. Yeah. From an exhaust pipe. <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway i guess i just had to say it it wasn't even related to what we were saying <laughs> i definitely noted that though so we come you know batman gets his car crunched and uh you know it's kind of pulled up which i think it's like a pretty fun thing to see uh mm -hmm. a creative way of ruining your car after pointing out how indestructible it is they're like yeah how, how would you hurt the batmobile <laughs> yeah yeah and it like i maintain that Batman was a dumbass this whole episode. It was a totally idiotic mistake. I, I think it was really cool and it was cinematic the way the front end got crushed under this bridge, but I did kind of wish that it was a little more worthy of a defeat for the Batmobile because it seemed like a totally random, innocuous car chase and Batman just like was drinking earlier in the night or <laughs> I don't know what his problem was. But I will say when the when the front end got crushed, we see most of that shot from an interior shot of Batman and Robin, like reacting to the car getting crushed. And you see them bouncing 
uh, in their seats as like the lower end is getting sunk under the bridge and the back end is getting launched up into the air. And like, there's really great animation in that one, like one second shot, like when they bounce in their seats and they're just like, you just have a really great sense of the weight of like the car and their bodies in the car. I thought that was really great. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's one of those shots we were talking about where that's exactly. so much harder to pull off than some other stuff, just actual totally. real physical weight and gravity. Yeah. And totally unnecessary, but yeah, I totally caught it. Yeah. I, my theory is sleep deprivation. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if the dude <laughs> drinks, uh, I can't, I can't tell. I feel like he would have some sort of like limit. You know, I feel like he's probably keeping everything out of his life that he views as uh, related to like scum. <laughs> totally. His his hard lines that he draws. But it's like, hey man, you're up every night. You're a human. You gotta sleep. And this is what's gonna happen. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna get your car messed up and almost kill everybody on the freeway. Right. <laughs> Uh, but we fi- we from there. I think we do. We go to meet Earl, or I, or do we meet see the penguin pissed off? One of those two things happens. Yeah, I can't remember. We go to the penguin's lair, but I can't remember if that was before the garage. Well, I feel like we go to the garage. Yeah, because I remember them driving into like the abandoned factory. Yeah, we've where... seen this like exterior that seems kind of like seedy and spooky, and yeah, is you know, it's like I get it as like the guise of you know, you don't want to know where the garage is. But, like, also, Earl has to work there. <laughs> like, it's like, come on, man. <laughs> That's a good... Well, we don't know where Earl lives. It might be a really convenient location for his commute. That's true. I like that. I, I like that world where, you know, it's, it's thoughtful. <laughs> yeah. He just lives across the river. He just has to drive across the bridge, and he's right at work. It's just... And maybe he's, like, really, like, introspective and kind of a loner. He doesn't like working around a lot of people. The parking has got to be great at this abandoned factory. It's great. Yeah, he can play the music however loud he wants. Nobody else is there. Perfect. I want a garage in an abandoned factory now. Yeah, honestly, like that's that's the workspace we all need. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But we meet Earl uh, and his daughter, Marva, I believe is her name. Mm We pretty much. This is the first time we learned that Batman has a personal mechanic for for his car. Yeah. So it was an interesting introduction. Just this kind of like assumed relationship, which is which is a cool way to drop you in. Uh, but yeah, I, as a kid, I was like, "Have we met this character before?" <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that watching the episode too. But this is the first time we see him in the animated series. Is he from the comics? Do you know? Or I don't know. I don't have like a great encyclopedic knowledge of of the comics it really is mostly this cartoon i know he doesn't show up in the cartoon any other time um i I did read i remember as a kid i had this like book of short batman short stories um you remember those like those scholastic style uh, at least in school we used to get these like little you know pieces of these newsletters where you'd like circle what books you wanted and yeah yeah uh, like the bookmobile yeah and i and there was one that was a bunch of short batman stories um and it was called like tales of the batman i think it came out in 95 and one of them was about a tailor who like repairs villains costumes and like they never said the name of the villain but you kind of knew because it was like here's my question mark hat i love that so there was something like that floating around for sure but i don't know I don't know about what was the character in the Christopher Nolan movies that was played by Morgan Freeman. That wasn't the Batman Lucius Fox. So Lucius Fox. Okay. Yeah. And so he's also in the animated series, but he's just, you know, uh, one of the top sort of dudes at Wayne Corp. So, or Wayne tech. I see. So I think they merged those characters to some extent, maybe, uh, and just made Lucius. That makes sense. Also like a cool tech guy, almost like a Q. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for Batman. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
Yeah, that's what I was kind of hoping for more in this episode. Just an idea of like what Earl and Marva are up to. Like, what were they doing when Batman showed up with the Batmobile? Like, they fix other cars or are they developing new tech and gear for Batman? Or are they just like watching Jeopardy, waiting for Batman to mess up the Batmobile? Or I guess the Batmobile's probably constantly got issues. Yeah, I would assume so. I mean, I guess they made those bat cycles that they kind of cinematically reveal but uh and i don't know if that was the first appearance but i I love it i hate the bat cycle really i'm so sorry (laughs) look i love the bat cycle like the cycle itself is awesome but the helmets oh the helmets are so stupid looking and they look just like minifig like lego minifig helmets like there's nothing stylish or cool about it and it's like and and this show came out around the time that like parents were starting to force their kids to wear pads and helmets every time they left the house on their bike or whatever. Because when I was a kid before that, it was just like lawless. Like going outside as a kid was like the road warrior. There's no rules. <laughs> but then like started to be this movement to wear helmets. And I feel like that's why they made Batman wear a helmet. Because like I'm sure. Batman wouldn't normally wear a helmet, but they had to like set a good example for kids. So like if you're trying to set a good example for, a good example for kids, make the helmet look badass. Don't make it look like, like a Nerf like Lego toy. It just looks so, I don't know. so chunky. Yeah. I remember, yeah. uh, wondering why he needed it for the ears. Like it's truly purely for aesthetic <laughs> purposes. Cause those have totally. to crunch down. <laughs> it's a cowl. Oh my God. It's fabric. And even if it was just like a glass, like if it was the same shape, but just had like black glass over the front with the ears, that'd be pretty badass. But the fact that it was just like this chunky gin piece and the eye holes cut out, yeah. Yeah, if we had like a so Daft dumb. Punk helmet style. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, yeah. Helmet. What I what I love about the Bat Cycle is maybe not even related to the cycle itself, but the design of like w- the wheel covers kind of look like yeah. uh, like a chocolate dipped Oreo. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know those those wheels look really delicious. <laughs> they just look. That's a great metric for judging automobile and motorcycle design. Yeah, I don't know anything about it looks cars. Delicious. It looks good. It's like buying a wine. Yeah. If you don't know anything about wine, it's like, yeah, the whoever designed the label, it looks pretty fucking cool. <laughs> totally. <laughs> this one has a you know cracking on it. Great. <laughs> That's why a Cybertruck was such a design failure because it doesn't look edible. That's the problem. That's the problem. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know what they're doing. I I wish we got a little bit more about their characters. I mean, especially Marva. But, you know, I guess this really did feel like a kids cartoon first style episode where it's like, we need the big rubber ducky. We need the car chases. Um, But it feels like it's a pretty sweet job if they're just sitting around waiting for Batman all day. Although, girls got to be pretty bored if that's the case. (laughs) Uh, And we do. Then we get to the penguin uh, who is just pissed at his his goons who are probably like broken everywhere inside <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they're just getting around fine one of whom is voiced by john delancey i'll remind everyone yes it's randomly i mean and then we have this guy who's brought in by one of the goons uh who's got like intel very convenient you know style <laughs> intel for the episode which is yeah. that they can trace who's been buying these weird parts. And he's just this like shitty nerdy dude. <laughs> <laughs> I love that plot de- detail. I thought that worked. I thought it was just like a really elegant way to like bring this whole thing together. But I did think that it was a really stupid oversight on Batman's part to just like allow Earl to order car parts every time the Batmobile gets 
damage because it's just so obvious. Yeah, that was the real win at the end of the episode is like, hey, Earl, guess what? I may have endangered your life and your family's life, but now I've learned my lesson. I'm going to I'm going to be doing it covertly. <laughs> like You should have been doing that in the first place. man. Yeah, totally. There was a lot of things this episode that made me think like, oh, yeah, they should have already had something in place for this very possibility. Like there was a lot of like safety, like contingencies that they didn't have set up that. Yeah, I think... Well, they've learned their lesson now. If they would have called it out maybe a little bit more and like, oh, he's making a mistake. <laughs> you know, I... Yeah. Uh, or if this was the night where like Batman pulled an all-nighter and we just see he's exhausted and, and kind of that's why he's fucking yeah. up. But to exactly. say that he's the same dude who like can blindly throw his fist up and like punch somebody without <laughs> looking at them, but also has to back up to get off the freeway like you were saying. <laughs> uh, but it makes it fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and we do have, again, this is like that rubber ducky, by the way. If you haven't seen Batman Returns in a while, and I don't know what your level of enjoying the campier types of things are, uh, what it's so fun to see a giant practical or like a miniature playing practical in a 90s movie of a giant rubber duck that does float down the sewers. It's less exciting, I think, in a cartoon, but yeah. when you see it <laughs> and you see Danny DeVito riding in it, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll have to revisit it. I honestly haven't seen Batman Returns since it came out, so that would be I'm overdue. Here's my pitch uh, also for why you should watch it, even though you've already agreed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Christopher Walken is kind of uh, another one I of the villains. I forgot he was in that. And there's a man who has to play his son, and that man is forced to do a Christopher Walken accent. <laughs> and I think that's the fun. And he does a good job, but the idea that like the accent is part of the tapestry of the movie is very funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is a glowing recommendation. It's definitely the top of my list. Uh, yeah. It's better than all films that are out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I will say of all the Batman movie sequels, I, I would constantly get this like Batman theme stuck in my head. And for a while I thought it was a theme from Batman, the animated series. And I recently went back to like listen to all the Batman the Animated Series score soundtracks on Spotify or whatever to find this song. So it was like this Batman theme that I just like couldn't place. And it wasn't from the animated series. I went back through Batman, the first Batman and Batman Returns, listened to those scores, and it wasn't from that either. I was like, what was this score from? And it was from the Val Kilmer Batman movie, which like for all its failings, had a great, super catchy score. Yeah, I, I think of that score... Is that the one? And this is me trying to sing a score, but it's like dun 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 It's so good. It's really good. Yeah. I rewatched Batman Forever that one recently, and it's it's bonkers. I loved it because I was the right age. I think I like aged out at Batman and Robin, but I still liked Batman Forever. But it is crazy and there's also an extended cut like schumacher had to there's like a three-hour version of the movie that oh my god warner brothers i think has the footage to to me that's like i don't i don't care about a snyder cut give me this like schumacher <laughs> batman forever cut with all these extended sequences with like jim carrey losing his mind and oh my god i'm into it i feel like the snyder cut's gonna open the door for a lot of stuff like that <laughs> yeah that's uh, Thank you so much, uh, angry, uh, pro problematic fans. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Great. You're getting your four-hour movie. Cool. Um, Everybody's happy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Well, some people are happy. Yeah, some people are happy. Some people, I don't know if I... Are mad. Are mad. And some people <laughs> maybe won't watch it. <laughs> uh, so we get, let's see, we, we get this, this, this stooge who's sent to his death, we can presume, by spiraling down a drain. Yeah, pretty sure he's dead. Yeah. Um, Which seems a really short-sighted choice on the part of the Penguin, because this guy could have been great intel for future... Yeah, schemes. You could have tracked down who Batman's secret identity, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, just short sighted all around. Yeah, I mean everybody's fucking up in this episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah, amateur hour. Uh, and then we we basically get the the Penguin showing up to force Earl to do his bidding. Uh, Right, and that's where by threatening Marva, which I feel like is the only reason Marva exists in this episode. Yes, is to force Cheryl. She into is doing the damsel in distress. Uh, yeah. the entire episode. Yeah, which I felt like obviously is stupid. And if I was writing this episode, I would have changed that. I would have had the Penguin bring in the Stooge guy into Earl's thing, and then kill the Stooge in front of Earl, and have that be like the threat instead of having this like random secondary character that doesn't ever do anything. Yeah. It felt like there were so many unnecessary characters, just even having all of the penguins goons. Like why wasn't the penguin driving the car in the first scene? Yeah. I don't know. It, it feels like just a lot more work for design, for voice casting for, but I mean, it's fun yeah. that the world feels filled out. Uh, yeah. Well, like we were saying, they love to give themselves more work than they needed to do. So <laughs> just totally. more examples. Let's have twice as many characters in this episode as we need. Okay. Let's have a flashback in which we have even more characters. <laughs> uh, I didn't remember any of this. So this is, you know, he, he like holds Marva hostage and he's like, so why do you help the Batman out? What's this deal? What's, what's the deal with your relationship? And we kind of get Earl's backstory that he worked at mm-hmm. Global Motors and he was a whistleblower, which yeah. I didn't know what a whistleblower was when I saw this <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a super cool backstory. And it was very like, like anti-corporate in a way that I like have adopted as an adult. So this maybe also might've been like a foundational brick on, on that kind of ideology that I've adopted. But yeah, it was, I thought it was a cool backstory. I will say though, that I have a outstanding question that you might be able to answer, which is that why the fuck was Batman spying on this random car company's meeting? That's my question, too. I mean, a very conspicuous device. <laughs> it's like shaped like right. a bat and right behind his head. <laughs> totally. I don't know. I have no clue. I, I feel like, you know, it was like, okay, this is the part of the story we don't know about. And we're being dropped in. And like, you know, we're just seeing it from Earl's perspective is my kind of generous uh, take on why yeah but you know assuming like batman's been working to you know kind of catch these corrupt car makers <laughs> yeah i guess there was yeah that's a good point is they were already kind of corrupt but also maybe another possibility is that batman was already in the market as we'll see in a few scenes for a new batmobile so maybe he was just like spying on all of the auto manufacturers in gotham to see like which manufacturer had like a person of moral integrity on the payroll. <laughs> yeah. A person with no moral integrity, somebody spying on them, <laughs> trying to make sure. But I feel like that is like that, that it's hard to like Batman completely as an adult. Like you were saying, like there's something really cool about, especially this version, like all the villains really come from these, they feel like products of capitalism, you know, like they feel like products of, 
these shitty corporations, you know, making, you know, renew you like growth formula or whatever facial creams. Yeah. And then they pour them down Clayface's, you know, throat or, you know, all all these villains come from factories. Even the Joker's pushed into like a chemical vat, which is like symbolically like that. But at the same time, yeah. Batman is still somebody who like, he's a billionaire. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like his money is still being used in, in strange ways that are like hard to reconcile. But I mean, I don't know how yeah. you change the character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't either. But yeah, I guess it partly is because Bruce Wayne is like like actively a capitalist. He's not like someone who just like inherited a bunch of money and is collecting an interest on that money while he like spends that money to build his things, but he's like actively acquiring other companies and investing and making decisions. Yeah, it's to grow as well. I would love to see a Batman story where he reckons with that. Uh yeah. at least now cuz I mean, I don't know what these new movies are going to be, but I have a feeling it's not necessarily going to go fully down that path, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. It would be really interesting. I think, yeah, I think, I think that's maybe even more interesting than this whole, like, I feel like in the past few years, there's been a lot of conversation and pushback on Batman being, and all superheroes just being like fascistic or just like the fact, like the argument against Batman being as like the, the guy who's like punching like underprivileged people who are just trying to survive and like just he's just like you know what i mean so it would be interesting to see like the capitalistic ties and how that anyways i've completely lost my train of thought you were onto something really interesting and i think it'd be really cool but i feel like those are the kind of stories you can explore better with the characters around batman rather than looking at batman himself because i think batman's one of those characters that like once you start to peel back the layers of the onion he becomes less and less likable the more you get into it as a human being and like less identify like you have a harder time identifying with this person yeah i mean even yeah in terms of like his money and also like his emotional <laughs> exactly lack, yeah. lack of processing like on the one hand yeah. he is doing good but also he's still he's he's paralyzed <laughs> in oh. this kind of trauma rather than kind of like moving forward uh yeah exactly but yeah and he does seem like a character that's kind of kept at arm's length and i wonder if that's one of the reasons why he's so enduringly popular is because he gives so little of himself emotionally that people are able to project their own intentions and their own like personalities onto him kind of like like samus aaron and metroid where like you don't really know what's under the helmet so you're just like i'm that person under the helmet and you can just engage with it a little more intimately yeah he feels like especially like our favorite versions of him like this ultimate shadow self kind of (laughs) character uh, and, and even in like, you know, the dark Knight and th- these episodes, like the villains are the more human characters. I mean, the Joker, yeah. not so much more symbolic in that movie, but I feel like for the most part, we understand the backstories and almost like the psychological trappings of them. But Batman has this like kind of canonical story, but we don't dig into much of his personal life otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I'm into it. <laughs> I want to, I want to see, <laughs> I want to see more stories about that. I'm also curious. I mean, this is another conversation entirely, but like rewatching this series and kind of the presence of police in, in this cartoon uh, and like what it is to be a good cop. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I feel like that's also emblematic of like Batman comics is like extreme corruption and then extreme like savior kind of like good cop and like that there's not yeah. fully a middle ground. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, because there's only two cops that I think have like ever been like given major storylines and that's the chief, Jim, Jim Gordon yeah. and Bullock. 
who's like the super corrupt cop, right? Yeah, and he's not corrupt in the cartoon, but in the comics, in the movies, he's like the model of corruption. He's not corrupt in the cartoon. I remember him being like he, just an asshole. He is an asshole. That's exactly what he is. He's just like, okay. ah, I'm a lovable asshole. Like, ah, I see. It, but he's not corrupt, corrupt. I don't trust the he's bat. Yeah, like he's a bad guy because yeah. he doesn't like that Batman has unchecked power, which is probably something that we should right. call into question. But yeah, fair, fair bullock. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm taking us off on a tangent. But what do we get to? We get to Earl's backstory. Um, he's a whistleblower. And we just sort of see this panel of, of dudes telling him not to do that. And then he, he stands up for his values and Batman spying and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he storms out. I definitely was like waiting for there to be some kind of a racial commentary to the scene because I feel like that was like a huge underlying theme that the show probably just wasn't in a place to explore. But I probably picked up on that a little bit as a kid because it was just like this panel of white dudes, just like classic old white dudes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like caricatures of these guys. Yeah. And this one lone black dude is standing up and, and gets shut out of the conversation, fired, and then threatened. Yeah. They send some hired goons after him to do what? I'm not sure, but they sent a lot of people after him. Like he fights off the first three or four guys. And then another wave of guys come. I assume to kill him. This is a very murderous episode. Yeah, I think so. Because one guy had a huge wrench. A really horrifying <laughs> implication. <laughs> uh, like truly the same episode that has a man swirling down a giant drain and a rubber ducky. Also, there's right. an implicit like somebody's going to be beaten to death with a wrench. Uh, <laughs> totally. With prejudice. And I, <laughs> to go back to the rubber ducky scene, I just remembered something else I thought that was really funny and interesting and telling about that scene, which is that as the stooge was going down the toilet about to drown, his main concern was that he's going to be late getting back to the office, which is like such an indictment of capitalism also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the show constantly is doing that. And, and I think it definitely seeped into my brain at an early age because I can't think yeah. of other cartoons that were doing the same thing. At least not that not at that time. Not on the regular. I will say though, there's one episode of G.I. Joe that stuck with me for many years, and that's the the window cleaner episode. I haven't seen it. I don't it. know if you ever watched G.I. Joe, but there's a famous episode that I think is a play on an old joke. Because I was recant recounting it to somebody else and like, oh, that's that old joke. But there's this the whole story I'll go through as quickly as I possibly can, but it really reminds me of this episode, so it's somewhat relevant to the conversation. But it starts with uh, G.I. Joe head- headquarters getting a phone call and the person's like, I am the Viper. I will be there at noon. And then everybody's like, holy shit, the Viper's coming here. Like, what are we going to do? And like the whole episode, like he, they keep getting these phone calls as they're amassing this defense, expecting there to be some huge cor- Cobra assault on G.I. Joe headquarters. He's like, I am the Viper. I will be there in 10 minutes. And they're like, holy shit, he's going to be here in 10 minutes. And they like get all the G.I. Joe guys pointing their guns at the main gate. And the gate finally opens. And it's like this old Russian dude with like a bucket and a squeegee. He's here to clean the windows. He's like, I am the window viper. I am here to wipe your windows. <laughs> Which is like probably a super racist and like, I feel like I remember just the joke. I didn't. I never watched GI Joe, um, but that joke must have circulated around like the playground. <laughs> totally, that's wild that it was in an episode. <laughs> yeah, a whole episode is built around this xenophobic ass joke. But I think 
it stuck with me because it was like, again, just like this episode, it was like a glimpse at the world around these characters that the show is built around, like who actually cleans, who actually does clean the windows of GI Joe headquarters. It's gotta be somebody. Cause like dial tone's not going to do it. Flint's not going to do it. They got to farm this stuff out to somebody. Yeah. That's interesting. That, I mean, and, and of course it's played for comedy. It's not like played for like, <laughs> Hey, here's a person that's <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Here's a human being with agency. Yeah, Isn't this funny? <laughs> they sound different. Totally. Uh, <laughs> wow. I haven't, I truly haven't thought about that. I don't, I wonder if it was also something that was passed around because of the cartoon at the age I was, but, or maybe it was like one of those like old, you know, just circulated shitty jokes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, it is, yeah. I think we need a full series of of this kind of stuff. Uh, these characters, I want to see them, uh, or like just a, just a TV spinoff. Give us that. <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. Um, well, where do we get to after after Earl's flashback? Well, actually, for a second, we get that first Batmobile that pulls up, which I think is oh yeah, the hoopty. I forgot about that. Like, I didn't remember that this was even in the animated series. Like, that we get. I think it's like a '50s design from the comics. Um, mm-hmm. that like shows up puttering as after Earl has been saved later, Batman shows up and it's like, I need a new car. <laughs> yeah. It's such a hilarious scene. It's like the old Batman with the Batman face on the hood, like a whole ass Batman face on the front of it. And it just like pulls up and it's just like puttering and bouncing and just like, chugga, 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 chugga. it just like the whole episode paints Batman as just like such a doof. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's just driving around in this jacked up ass car. Doesn't have any, anybody to fix it. Like how long was he driving the car around like that? Well, also looking for Earl. Like, I mean, if, was he tracking him or was he just driving around the streets of Gotham <laughs> in a puttering car as it's like, yeah, it's just him like pushing it out of a ditch in the snow. <laughs> Please Earl, you got to help him brother. Out. Please. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I, I mean, remember, I was the guy who helped stave off that second wave of wrench guys. Those guys. Oh, yeah. The other thing I want to say about that shot, too, is like when Earl gets saved by Batman and they cut to that shot of like Earl with the shadow yeah. of Batman and the other bad guys projected onto him. I feel like that to me is like the quintessential Batman, the animated series like shot. And it's it also just like focusing on, on the characters around the superheroes rather than like, look how awesome it is when this guy punches this other guy. But it's like, how does that affect other people or like how do other people react to that, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, I, I clocked that shot, too. Like the noir. I mean, it's just like these beautiful silhouettes. And, and yeah. similarly, it's not the same kind of shot. But I think when Batman eventually like reconnects with Earl after he's been kind of forced into helping the penguin that first shot of Earl coming out of the shadows. Like he has this like heaviness to him. Like his face isn't shown initially as he starts speaking and it's just like this harsh black and he like walks out and his, his face is like so heavy <laughs> with like the burden oh, of, of wow. the, the knowledge, yeah. which I was like, Oh, this is like for what, you know, however goofy the writing of the episode sometimes is, I think the, the visual language is, is elevated. Yeah. Yeah. If you pay really close attention to it. I also noticed during the shadow shot that Earl was like mimicking the boxing motions when Batman was fighting. Like he was like really projecting himself onto Batman. Oh, that's cool. I didn't notice that. Yeah. I I feel like later in the episode, we do get a little bit of Earl kicking ass. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Trapping people in tires. Uh, (laughs) But that's fun. I mean, yeah, it's just little character flourishes that I think the details that they don't do in, in every cartoon. Yeah. Um, trying to see. So, so Earl agrees to be Batman's mechanic right. after he pulls up in the hoopty. 
and then the rest is history, right? Yeah, I think we then get to Batman arriving at the station, Earl kind of giving him these broad hints <laughs> about the air conditioning unit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what does he say? He talks about the basement. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we got to clean something up in the basement. In the basement. And then he said he replaced the air conditioning. And this is the moment where I felt like if, if Batman was really worth his salt, he would already have like a secret code word. Like I felt like for sure that's why Earl was saying that weird shit in the scene was because that's Batman and Earl's secret code for when something's wrong and Batman's going to know. But it wasn't. Earl was just like trying to lay these subtle hints and Batman was just like, okay, Earl, whatever. I did love that reaction of Batman weirded out by somebody where it's like, yeah. all right, man. Uh, <laughs> totally. Whatever. Cool. Uh, well, I'm going to hop on these uh, Oreo cycles and head on out. <laughs> Put on this cool helmet. <laughs> so funny. Oh, yeah, and I forgot that Robin totally had, like, 90s sitcom boyfriend hair. Oh, yeah. Which is, I think, distinct to the animated series versus other uh, approaches to the character. Yeah, just very, like, it gelled Moose. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Gelled as hell. <laughs> and they, yeah, they, they pop on there. They head on out. Um, and then we eventually... I think we we get them on oh they they get in the Batmobile there. Sorry, I, I mixed up where we were. But basically the Batmobile sequence where Penguin, you know, farts on Batman's car. Uh right. that's exactly this is what the happens. action scene we're all waiting for. At the airport, which I thought was like a fun place to put it, but like kind of didn't come into play in a huge way. Well, it did, but like it was just it reminded me of was it Fast and the Furious Seven with the tarmac I, chase? I'll be honest, I've never seen a single Fast and the Furious movie. You should watch them; they're incredible. But I think it was Seven where there's a tarmac chase, where there's a a car chase with an airplane on a tarmac, and it's like the climax of the movie. And so it's drawn out over the course of like twenty minutes, like a twenty minute climax and it's all just on a straightaway on a tarmac so this like plane is trying to take off on the tarmac and these are cars are like driving around underneath it and like shooting or bouncing or jumping or whatever and this plane is driving on this tarmac in a straight line for 20 minutes and you're just like how long is this tarmac it's like a 30 mile long tarmac because all these cars are going like 100 miles per hour but the the airport in this episode totally reminded me of that because it's like first when they first drive onto the the tarmac or whatever and penguin takes control of the car he first thing he does is like drives it and like fakes him out like he's gonna crash into a brick wall like why is there a brick wall on the tarmac and then he turns around and then he just drives straight into a parking garage i'm like why is there a parking garage entrance that you can drive into right off of the tarmac yeah there's like no real (laughs) logic to it (laughs) I feel like there's a bunch of other, like, there's like a semi truck on the tarmac. Well, that plays into the climax of the shot, but I'm like, why is there a semi on the tarmac? Yeah, I felt like there was, there were a few things where we're like, we need to make this a set piece with different elements and why yeah. could you drive a lot? <laughs> and then just kind of placing everything <laughs> around it. I wonder if it was, I feel like it could have been a studio note that ended up putting it on the tarmac because they're like, I can imagine somebody being like, this scene would obviously be more exciting if the penguin was driving the Batmobile through Gotham city, like through alleys and like through watermelon carts or whatever, and like terrorizing the citizens of Gotham. But then some exec was just like, well, how, but how does the penguin see where the car is going? 
if it, like once it goes around a corner, the penguin can't see. So it has to be in like a big wide open place. So penguin can control it like a remote control car. And they're like, well, we could put it on a tarmac. Yeah, perfect. Cause there's airplanes, but then they just ended up going straight into the parking garage anyways, where penguin can't see. The hardest place to so drive, maybe that was, even if you're not, yeah, exactly. you know, uh, in an action sequence. <laughs> I would love to know the story behind that. Look, I know I keep saying it. I think you're going to love Batman Returns for that very reason, because that's <laughs> what they do in that movie. Uh, but the Penguin is also on one of those like bouncy, <laughs> like it's insane. Uh, he's on like one of those springy like playground, like almost like horses. You know, there's like a big spring in the center. Yeah, he's yeah. on some version of that as like a toy. Maybe it's a Batmobile. Maybe it's something else. But like he's controlling the Batmobile from that, bouncing up and down <laughs> insanely as he drives it through the city. So, asking you shall uh, yeah. receive Tim Burton style. <laughs> Maybe they had to differentiate it from the movie. I don't Maybe. know because there, there was some choice. Yeah, I feel like for them, maybe they were like, we've got to ground this. <laughs> and their version of grounding it was still, <laughs> you know, putting a parking garage right off the tarmac. Insane. Uh, and then eventually Batman has his very, like, uh, Adam West style aha of like, of course, like, basement. Yeah. That's what race, uh, term racers use, you know, when they're about to crash or something. Uh, or about to, like, and it was honestly way too late for him to make that connection. Like, it was way, I mean, it was like, like seven-year-old children would have figured this out before Batman figured it out. And it was for those seven-year-old children to understand, probably. Exactly, yeah. So they could feel that sense of like, yeah, I figured it out before Batman did. That's probably what it was. Yeah, which is, I get it. I, I still think it's one of those things that I think the kids are smarter than they were assumed to be. Like, I feel like some of the episodes, they really treat you like an adult or at least like an adult can kind of watch it with the same sort of perspective. Uh, And this one definitely felt noted up uh, for sure. Right. (laughs) Uh, We need to hear it spelled out uh, in the middle (laughs) of an action sequence. Right. Yeah. And then in that case, the, the whole thing about mentioning the basement. So like when Batman first picks up the car, Earl's like, I have to clean something in the basement, in the basement. It's very important that I clean something in the basement. And by the way, I fixed the air conditioner switch on the car. And Batman clocks both of those things. But the basement thing really is meaningless because that only leads Batman to the conclusion that Earl was trying to tell him something in this final scene that we're talking about now. Yeah. Because like everything's going wrong. And then Robin says something about like, we're going to fall off of the parking garage or something. And he's like, fall down basement he like makes this like connection that's what he was trying to say the basement basement cooper earl earl cooper he (laughs) went down to where where could he have gone (laughs) yeah it is a long road just to get to something that could have been like earl mentions the air conditioning that's all you need exactly yeah uh and i I feel like yeah because then robin could have been like we're really in the heat now batman and then batman could have been like the air conditioner yeah there's a much simpler way of getting to it i feel like they (laughs) knew that there was a racing term and they kind of wanted to play with that uh that must have been and and i feel like the smarter version of the script is probably like batman clocks it but the audience doesn't know and so we can still be along for the ride but there's some sort of like batman is holding it over the penguin you know, I don't know. I, I feel like it's an exact note to, you know, keep the stakes high in some capacity. Yeah. So who knows? It, it may not be the writer's faults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. It would have been cool if we actually saw the Batmobile explode without seeing Batman and Robin get away. And then Penguin's driving away. And then Batman can explain what happened later. 
or just like thank Earl in the end being like, thanks for that note about the air conditioner. It took me fucking forever to figure it out, but eventually. <laughs> yeah, I got to it. Uh, we lost a Robin in the process, but I got a whole yeah, closet totally. full of them. <laughs> it's a real off day for me. I didn't get much sleep last night. <laughs> yeah. Did you see me on the freeway? I don't know if you saw me on the freeway, but there's news yeah. coverage of it. It was bad. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't use the reverse thrusters and that bridge was coming down. Fuck. What a dumb. Yeah, I know. I, I paid you a lot of money to put in those reverse thrusters. <laughs> yeah. That was a whole thing. We had a whole conversation yeah, about I it. Yeah, I went back. Totally I was forgot. a little too nitpicky on the notes. I wanted them aesthetically pleasing also. <laughs> well, now they're fucked. Yeah. So. Hey, uh, fix it, please. <laughs> and sorry about your daughter being traumatized forever. <laughs> totally. And then Batman, when he goes back uh, to Earl's, I don't know if I'm skipping anything, but he makes that like weird joke about who where his money comes from yeah he's like uh what does he say like is like an offshore like some other accounts or yeah something yeah he was like i'm gonna i'll have my er my and he like makes this really cartoony like er my anonymous backers will be sending you something yes that's what it is It's a very, it's like if Earl doesn't know already, just let Earl in. You know, Earl's trustworthy. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's something like the Earl's Nolan movies people. did, uh, which felt smart. It was like, yeah, give him a confidant. Yeah, it makes sense. But we do get, I think, we, we get like that glider, you know, them, you know, being ejected on the gliders at the end of the fight. I feel like that was a very toyetic, you know, thing yeah. for them to wear. Although I don't know if they ever made them. And he grapples onto the penguin's car. He's dragged around parasailing style. And he was, this is also something I noticed, which he, he didn't use the grappling hook's automatic retraction motor to pull himself in. He was like literally pulling, like climbing up the grappling hook rope, which I'd never seen before. Yeah, It's like, Earl, I need you to make these retractable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Especially coming off of the first Batman, the, t- the first Tim Burton Batman movie where like the retractable grappling hook was a huge toy it was like a huge set piece and it was like a huge thing that they sold so it's not like that wasn't part of canon no and it's in the cartoon too so it's just in this moment he it feels like you know just for dramatic purposes we see him climbing it's like we know you're buff man yeah we know you can do this uh and then I, i one of the only other things i noted was that the penguin's car goes under the airplane and it's clipped or the truck uh and marma could have been beheaded (laughs) like everybody That was yeah. That was a really that was a close call. It was a lot of bad bad accidents here, and we have Batman <laughs> wagging his finger, kind of in an upshot. He's like, uh-uh. yeah. <laughs> so good, classic Batman, real gifable. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but that's pretty much it. We just end with what we talked about with him setting Earl up with a new place uh, that's you yeah. know a little bit more covert with his ordering of parts. Yeah, I feel like everybody learned a lot of very valuable lessons during this whole adventure. Yeah, a lot of real-world practicality. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of conversations like, we really should have thought this through before. <laughs> we really dodged several bullets here. Yeah, literal bullets and figurative bullets. <laughs> uh, and they all sit around over, not beer, Batman's not drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, was there anything else about the episode that popped out to you or that we we didn't chat about? Um, so then after that shot, then they cut to Penguin in prison. Oh, yes. And he's in the license plate printing thing. And he his job is to wipe off the license plates after they're 
Yeah, I, I guess so. Just kind of wipe them off of, I don't know, metal dust shavings? I, yeah, seems like, like kind of a fuck you job <laughs> that they gave him. Like, this actually doesn't need to be done, but we're just going to make you do this. Yeah. Maybe he pulled some strings because he didn't want to do anything harder. And then he gets a license plate that says, and you mentioned that the, the license plate state header says, what, oh, what it was did like it say? the Dark Deco state, which the Dark is Deco just the state. style of the show that they called it internally. <laughs> was like kind of, you know, their way of saying it's a timeless kind of noir setting and it's all very, you know, on blacks. Uh, the backgrounds are all black. So they called it Dark Deco. That's I think awesome. that's how they got away with but, guns too. They were like, a Dark Deco weapon was what, what's written in a lot of the scripts. Interesting. Yeah, I wondered about that. Because I remember that, yeah, like I said, I remember that being a big deal, but I never like read anything about what the actual conversations were like with the networks to get past the censors with their guns. I think it had a lot of freedom in the beginning because of the Burton movies. And as mm-hmm. the show went on, they got more and more censored. Like Robin was forced to be in more of the episodes. Um mm-hmm. and, you know, they they kind of made it a little bit more kid friendly, but it still stayed pretty dark up until the end yeah Um, the license plate itself is insane uh right so he gets a license plate that says one bat for you is that what it uh says and he just like is enraged and then he breaks the license plate as if it's made from pizza crust or something yeah like a like a cracker crust pizza it's it's incredible penguin those umbrella weapons yes we've heard of them we've never heard of your superhuman strength (laughs) out of all people we did not expect you to be able to break a license plate in half well yeah but also like why does it break it's insane it it should just bend yeah and then like not only does it break but like crumbs fall off that's why i was just like was this this goes back to your whole like the edibility of the bat motorcycles thing like are these edible (laughs) license plates i think that's the subtext of the episode is everything is edible (laughs) yeah i think that must be it yeah uh i also liked that he repeated like the license plate out loud angrily paul williams who's (laughs) written for like david bowie wrote the muppet movie songs like you know is the inspiration for like daft punk's helmets because of phantom of the paradise had to say one bat for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he sold the shit out of that line. Oh though. my god, he's he's incredible. Consummate professional. He's the best. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think we did it. That's we dove into the mechanic more than than I think I've ever thought about any of these Batman episodes. <laughs> really? Not, That's great. I, I think some okay. sometimes we we don't dive in, in as much detail, but I, it was so fun to like just dig into the details of it. Um was there stuff that you saw, I would say, like, we've talked kind of, like, about influence on, you know, what affects us as adults and our views of, like, capitalism and corporate sort of America. But in terms of being a writer, just, like, is there anything from this kind of show that it, like, seeped into your brain, you think, or affects the stuff you make now? Yeah, I think so. I think the the way you put it was, was you, you put it in much clearer and, and more provocative in articulate terms than I did, which I think you used the words patient and there's another word. Oh, there, I piggybacked off patient. of what you were saying. I had time to think about it. <laughs> okay. Right. I loosened the lid and then you popped yeah, it off. Exactly. But yeah, I think that patience is huge for me, especially with like something like upgrade soul, which was like just punishingly brutally slow in places. Um, I think I took some like licensed 
to do to make choices like that because of maybe things like Batman the animated series that would like came on the heels of shows that were nothing like that shows that were just like totally frenetic totally chaotic and then this thing comes along that's just like really controlled and really patient and really had a lot of respect for the intelligence and uh, and, and patience for the for the audience i think that's definitely part of it and just like the like the design again like like the design of of not only the world and the colors but just like the compositions of the shots the way characters exist in these spaces and move around in these spaces i think that's that's a huge huge influence on the way I like block my comic book panels when illustrating. Yeah. It's interesting to hear. I, I also, I should have said as an illustrator too, cause I feel like you're sometimes doing just writing duties and then sometimes doing it both, which is such a singular, what a cool thing to be able to do. I imagine to like draw it how you envision it. Although I imagine there's like the burden of meeting that <laughs> internal expectation, but yeah. it looks great. Um, interesting to hear you say like punishingly slow. Cause I feel like reading upgrade soul for me, it was very hard to put down. I would read it before bed every night when I first, you know, it was like a chapter or something, but I was like, it, it maybe doesn't have like action uh, all the time or like uh, the, the kind of like high concept stuff, but I feel like the characters are so well developed and interesting that, uh, and there's such like a uneasy mystery to it uh, that it never, it never felt slow uh, necessarily in like a negative way. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess if there's, a, if people don't know about this book, is there a way that you would describe it as well as bottom feeders? Like, because uh, I think they're truly two of my favorite anything's in the last couple of years. Like, it's 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 oh, the kind wow, of stuff I want to read and see and like uh, in the world more. Oh, awesome! I really appreciate that. Well, yeah. So, Upgrade Soul is my first major graphic novel. It took me 15 years to finish it. it came out in 2018 and. It won the Dwayne McDuffie Award for Diversity in Comics. So that was um, a really cool introduction to that world. I got to meet Phil Lamar and Charlotte McDuffie, or Charlotte Fullerton, Dwayne's um, widow, which was really exciting. Um, and so Upgrade Soul is like a really cerebral sci-fi romance about an elderly um, interracial couple and their malformed clones. And I think like the inspirations for that story are kind of like Cronenberg's The Fly with like the pacing of like, Solaris or um, Terrence Malick is like what I was trying to go for was just like really slow and really like thoughtful, like really character driven um, pacing. And then bottom feeders is kind of the antidote to that, which is just like a rip roaring, like sci-fi action comedy that we pitched as like black tremors. So it's about these two young women who moved to the South side of Chicago, looking for cheap rent in this gentrifying neighborhood. And they discover that there's, a monster that lives within the walls of their building. But tonally, it's very much like Tremors, where there's like there's a lot of commentary on race and capitalism and gentrification and cultural appropriation, but the tone is just like just fun sci-fi, like men in black style. It's so funny too. I think both of the books, you know, I, I think Bottom Feeders may be a little bit more overtly, but uh, you know, like I feel like you also use comedy in, in there. Like when I think of like Solaris, it's interesting to hear that because I'm like, oh. I wouldn't have clocked that initially, but I'm like, I think these characters are like naturally very human and, and real and funny in ways that like, I'm more engaged with them maybe than some of the movies that, you know, like, like a Cronenberg movie, but I feel like I see all of the tapestry of it. So that's, yeah, it's, they're both great. Uh, if you're listening and you haven't read them, uh, <laughs> go out and buy them. Uh, also they're on Hoopla, which is how I, yeah. So you can check them out for free. Read. Yeah. That's how I initially read upgrade soul. And then, 
That's awesome. I love Hoopla so much. It's so it's, amazing. I'm constantly telling my girlfriend, like, let's cancel Netflix, Hulu, all these things. Like, Hoopla and Canopy is, like, all the content that we need. And it's so easy and so the libraries are so good. And we're lucky, or at least, do you also, you live in L.A., as well, yeah, yeah. I think we have like the the like maximum amount amount of borrows or something like fifteen a month, which I know some places get like three. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, which I, I didn't realize. I was like, how does Hoopla work? Uh, and and I guess it is like library by library. Like even Burbank has a yeah. different amount of borrows, I think, than L.A. proper. Oh, interesting. Um, but because I'm just like, yeah, I'll get to it, and if I don't, oh well. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> we have the luxury of 15 borrows, but it's also like so much new stuff. And I don't know, I, I feel like that's the way I've been keeping up with comics, too, because there's so much. Yeah, totally. Incredible stuff on Hoopla. What is Canopy? Canopy is the um, it's one of I think, well, Hoopla has like a film streaming section, but Canopy is like film. It's dedicated film streaming uh, service that you get for free through the library. But they have like a lot of criterion stuff, a lot of, I think they have like the whole A24 catalog, but they also just have a lot of really obscure foreign and art films that just aren't on the mainstream streaming services. A lot of like short films, like short experimental art films that you just like would never find anywhere. Like I discovered Cheryl Dunny, who directed the famous race swapping episode of Lovecraft Country. Mm. She's an experimental um, filmmaker who's doing stuff like in the eighties and nineties and they had like all of her short films on this thing. And I was like, where else would I have been able to find these experimental short films by this art director? That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like even criterion just started to dive into that more. And I saw like one of your shorts is on there. Uh, yeah. I have a short film on the criterion. Channel. It was awesome. Wild. Yeah, it was, it was fun to watch. I was like, I'm watching whatever <laughs> this dude makes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, is there anything else? I feel like we've covered we've covered it all, uh, but on my end. But I, I want to make sure that you, if there's anything else you want to chat about. Yeah, no, that that I think that covers it for me. But yeah, as far as like if I'm trying to plug anything, I don't have anything coming out except for season three of Doom Patrol, which I think starts this fall. So get on your HBO Max. I'm excited. Check it yeah, out. we we all. That's you can watch Doom Patrol and you can watch Batman the animated series on the same. Yeah, it's all platform there. and. And the Snyder cut. Oh yes, all yeah, and hopefully the Schumacher <laughs> cut. <laughs> <laughs> totally, all in one place. <laughs> uh, and where can people find you online if they want to follow your work? I am on all the social media platforms. At my tag is at Ezra C Daniels, and my website is ezracdaniels.com. Cool. Thank you so much for doing the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great to finally do this, and I hope you have a great remainder of your pandemic. <laughs> yeah, thank you for however long it lasts. <laughs> Right. Cool. And that was Ezra Clayton Daniels. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and subscribe in Apple and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash BTAS Podcast. The tiers have been updated for 2021 and they help keep the show archive free and pay for the production and the hosting. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Brian Holmes edited this episode, and Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of this podcast. Thank you again to my guest, Ezra Clayton Daniels. And of course, 
Thank you to Tori Malatia, who showed up in my garage to threaten me, saying, Perhaps you've heard of my umbrella weapons. Would you like to see what one can do to your daughter? Okay, first of all, Tori, you know I don't have a daughter. And, and, and second of all, sometimes I get the feeling we're not actually friends, and you just consider our relationship one long-running bit based on what Ira Glass used to say at the end of each This American Life episode, but look, man, I don't know anymore. Just stop showing up in my garage with umbrellas that you've outfitted to become weapons. It's just, it's, I don't know, man. I just don't know. All right, well, the sixth anniversary episodes of this podcast continue next week. And until then, I hope you're all safe. Stay safe. Please wear a mask. We still need it. Even though that vaccine is still going around, you still need a mask. And uh, read Upgrade Soul, Bottom Feeders, Ezra's work. I'm literally here just to be a commercial for his work because I enjoy it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.